Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means we are into the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly uh, improvisation on the radio with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, about matters large and enduring. And we have, for the last eight weeks, this is week nine, been reading through Winston Churchill's The History of the English-Speaking People, published first in 1956, recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature, It is a breathtaking, wonderful work that I can take off the shelf every few years. And we come to book nine, um, Napoleon. My first large question to Dr. Arne is probably the the leading American scholar of Churchill and maybe in the world. Andrew Roberts made me rethink my very negative view of Napoleon, so it's only 90% negative now, because of Caesarism. What What is Churchill at the end, when you've read everything as you have, what does he think of Napoleon? Well, uh, he he, he uh, admired him, but not simply. Uh, he, I mean, first of all, what did Napoleon do? What he did that was bad was he exhausted his people. And, you know, he, what, what in the heck are they doing fighting battles outside Moscow? <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, that's, you can't imagine a world in which Winston Churchill would do that. Although, in any world in which that's going on, Churchill would wish to be there. <laughs> it, uh, you know, it, so, Napoleon, he led them on a great adventure. And, and he, he did, and he was not a tyrant, right? He, he was a lawgiver. A big, big law. You know, I don't like that kind of law. I like our kind. English common law and, and not the uh, Napoleonic code, which is detailed and sort of like our bureaucratic state now. Yeah, too much like that, I think. But it's you know, it's not nothing. It's very good, and you know, as these things go. But it's uh, so. Yeah, Napoleon. He was not a tyrant in the in any. Certainly not in any modern sense of that term. He's certainly ruthless when he executes 3,000 prisoners of war at Jaffa. And he, and he is often cruel in small ways, but he is a statesman. Yeah, he is. And, and you know, he, you know, he's, uh, it's, it, he is the last spasm of French domination of Europe, right? That's what they were trying to do for... 200 years, and that's why they had fights with Britain all that time. And, and uh, Napoleon is the last great one, and that led to the most glorious English victories uh, over France. And, uh, of course, Churchill celebrated those victories. And they're, they're, these victories are the ones that Churchill likes the best because they're naval victories. And Churchill thinks the Navy is the thing. I think that today, too. I think that we got nothing more important to do than build up the Navy and the Air Force. Amen, amen. And, and then your kid, your, 
the kid can be is his son-in-law, right? He can be an admiral. Yes. Well, <laughs> I don't know if he's going to stay in that long, but we'll see. Um, you know, Trafalgar happens in 1805, and we're going to come to that in the next segment. And then Wellington beats Napoleon in, what, 1815? Yeah. So, this goes on forever. Napoleon just endures, and he endures exile and comes. I mean, the guy is driven. And Churchill, I think, admires that because he had one of these careers that also went on forever. And he also came back not from a physical exile, but from a political exile. Yeah. it uh, and, and see, you can't understand. I mean, we haven't talked much about him, but you can't understand the greatness of France without understanding Louis the Fourteenth and Napoleon, and both of them were drawing on the energies of a great people loyal to their country, and so that and you know and they were the best at that. They did it the most and the best, and and uh, and you know it was uh, an honor to the British at the time to fight those guys because they were the best in the world except they turned out to be second best <laughs> the British would say well you know, Napoleon was a, it's a continental power it's not a sea power though he tried it just, yeah, they it's did. like Germany they, they tried and they didn't it didn't come native to them right right and, uh, that's uh, that's one of the things that I hope for in our great conflict with China first of all that it won't lead to a war there have been many wars and there'll be many more but I hope it won't lead to a big war. And I hope that our naval advantages will allow us to unite the free and independent peoples along the Eurasian continent on both sides of it in a resistance so they don't dominate the world. Do you know that um, a couple of weeks back I heard a, uh, a former senior military official, Navy guy, talk about the fact that our Navy has at its head people who have gone into the fight, and the Chinese Navy, the People's Liberation Army Navy, is very large and growing, but they've never actually commanded in a battle at sea. And he said there's a significant difference there. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I wouldn't be too cocky about that. No, he's not too cocky. We we're not building enough. Eventually, quantity has a quality all of its own, and they're just building a lot. I'm, I'm uh, hoping that the junior officers and upper-middle-level officers in the American military are not woke, because some at the top are now, and that's a crippling disability. You know, and, I think the new Congress is going to spend a lot of time uh, instructing the Pentagon on how it ought to be spending all of its time, not 90% of its time, which is winning wars. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we have been, you know, my opinion... I'm a student of Winston Churchill. We have been profligate in our use of war in places that haven't panned out, right? And, and you know, the, 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 the symbol of this profligacy is the retreat from Afghanistan and the, the disorder of that retreat. Yeah, and, the collapse. And so we need to fight where it matters. But, you know, that did not matter to the American electorate, Dr. Ron. Are you surprised by that? I I mean, a majority voted for Republicans who were standing for the House, and that's the one great, you know, solve from a disappointing election. Republicans got about 50. You know, there's a lot to talk about there, and and there's a reason the people might have not to have confidence in either party. 
And also, elections are being managed to a greater extent and differently than they ever have been. And so now you can uh, you can get a lot of people to vote who otherwise wouldn't and have an influence on how they vote. And the extension of the time to vote is what makes that possible. And it's an organized machine. And it, so it's electoral politics are working differently in America than they have before. And that was probably bound to happen because technology, you know, you can know everything about everybody through Google and all their stuff and all everything like that. And, and so, you know, we have to reach some equilibrium where people are independent and vote independently. Because fraud, you know, I'm a skeptic of fraud. I've never bought into fraud. But then along comes Samuel Bankman-Fried, who at the age of 28 embezzles billions from people in open market transactions, and he defrauded them all. And it's because of the Internet made possible the velocity of transfer. It's, it, it can happen eventually if we don't take precautions, Dr. Hunt. The, uh, so Lincoln says this thing, and this is what my touchstone is, what I think we have to have. See, I don't... I don't want a permanent Republican majority, it won't be good for the Republicans or us. Right. But what you want is the constitutional majority shifting easily from uh, in, in response to events and issues is the only true sovereign of a free people. And so you want people making independent choices. And... Uh, and, you know, they need to have an independent standing to make independent choices. And that's why you, the stuff you're talking about with Paul Ryan is so important. Because, you know, don't you want it? One, one wants everybody to live a fully human life. And that means confront the problem of making their own way and running their own families and getting their own education and, and, and raising their own children. And... If people do that, then then it makes them better citizens and better for one another, too. And believing what they will believe about God without being molested in that. That's it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's right. I will be right back. Trafalgar is ahead. There's a column in the center of London that has Nelson on top of it for a reason. We'll tell you why when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue, the history of the English-speaking people. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Brits have chosen to put one person at the center of London. It's uh, Admiral Nelson. He sits on top of a column. Dr. Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Arn, anyone who's read Patrick O'Brien's novels of uh, uh, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin know everything about Nelson because Maturin always talked about him, though he was dead. It was long after Trafalgar and Nile. But it is, he's an amazing character, and, and it suggests something about the British Navy, and we're talking about the Navy Tell us the, the minimum someone needs to know about Horatio Nelson. <laughs> well, do not make the mistake of getting into a battle with him. <laughs> <laughs> or anyone like him. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> this is the peak of British greatness, actually. And the Battle of Trafalgar is the symbol of it. First of all, uh, you know, London is a wonderful town. And governing London, you know, I can describe it to you, but I won't. It, 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 over, you know, maybe it's 
two miles on a side, there's a square, and Buckingham Palace is within that square, and, and the Houses of Parliament, and ben, Big Ben and Parliament Square and Westminster Abbey are within it. And then the road called Whitehall that runs along the river out of Par- Parliament Square and goes past Downing Street, where the Prime Minister lives, and then all the governing buildings, the classic administrative buildings of British government, the War Office and the Ministry of Munitions, where Churchill was, a lot of things like that. It ends in Trafalgar Square, which is a traffic circle, huge. And then, the, and you know, on one side of it is St. Martin in the Fields, a wonderful church, which our chapel is patterned after more than any other thing, I think. Uh, and in the middle of it is the Nelson statue, Nelson column. And it's so tall that you can hardly see Nelson. And, and he is facing France, keeping watch. <laughs> and at, at the bottom, there are these four huge, wonderful lions. The lions are lying down. Uh, They're taller than a person, even lying down. And they are made from cannon that Nelson captured from the French. (laughs) And and what is so great about that, above it all, is a sailor. Because it's a a sea power. And it it speaks to our crises today in defense, is that... All of the part of the American colonies dispute, as we just talked about last week, is because the uh, Americans were obliged to ship their goods on English bottoms. And part of that was an effort to keep the English Navy built and equipped so that it could be quickly turned to naval war if needed. That's it. And and uh, and they were, you know, Nelson was and see, if, if you if you think about uh, it's a good it's a good idea to go read those three chapters in and Churchill's Marlborough, his life and times about the Battle of Blenheim, because he describes very beautifully, and there's some maps, the movements of the troops, and they're very sophisticated, and they're and you know they're in constant adjustment to people dying all around, and smoke and noise and all that. But he could see right, and he could move his soldiers around, and the French never did, never could understand what he was doing. Well. At sea, it's the same thing. Uh, uh, look up with one the of, wind uh, thrown in. With the wind thrown in. Yeah, and you know, I mean, look at one of Turner's, which Churchill loves, is is, is great oil paintings of sea battles yeah. and ships at sea. And think of all the motion that's captured. And you know, they they communicate by flags back then, and of course, if it was foggy, you couldn't see them. Uh, but. So, you know, he's got how many ships? I, can, I, don't, I can't remember how many ships were at Trafalgar, but... Oh, it's 27 ships of war with the French, I think, and then the Spaniards threw in more, and the Brits had about the same... I mean, it just went on forever. And so, uh, the Battle of Trafalgar, the way he fought that battle, and see, uh, a sailing ship... Uh, You're going to have to hold that thought. Hold don't, it, yeah. we, can't, we can't sink that ship right now. We'll come back to the Battle of Trafalgar and then move forward to America when we come back.
1805, we're at the Battle of Trafalgar on which everything hangs. Admiral Nelson has chased the British fleet across the sea and back after having destroyed one at the Battle of the Nile years earlier. And, and Dr. Arm, we went to break, you were saying, uh, yeah. as the battle begins. A uh, quick thing about the Battle of the Nile. Napoleon went down to Egypt, you know, in the Place de la Concorde. There's the obelisk. That's some, well, that's right, that's in London. There's the obelisk, right? They, they go down to Egypt to fight. But because of Nelson, Napoleon had to walk back. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> he destroyed his fleet at the Battle of the Nile, the mouth of the Nile. And he went, he went where no one expected him to go, and his, his admirals, whom he had trained and had picked, were courageous, and they sailed between the Brits and the shore, which no one thought was possible. Yeah. At Trafalgar, so there's this long line of warships, running parallel to the shore at, at, at Trafalgar. And Nelson's coming from the sea, and he charges in a single line. And he crosses the T. He, he, he hits the middle of the British line. And see, uh, a warship, especially back then, uh, is weak, at the front and the back, because there's not much space. They don't have many cannon up there. And so the broad side is where the power is. And so by cutting through the British line, oh, the, sorry, the Spanish and French line, uh, the, the broad side of the British breaks the, the immediately present ships on each side. And then they split off and they go back down the line and he's got his whole force against half the French and the Spanish force and they just break them from both sides all up and down the line and you know they pretty much killed them all <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was an, uh, you know Nelson had a thing he said the commander uh, can never go wrong when placing himself along the side of his enemy and, uh, and it's so thrilling uh, to read about it, and Churchill loves to tell a battle story. I think he's just elegant in his writing, and he describes that. Uh, I, w I want to jump in before we run out of time, though, to two chapters in, in Book Nine. And in, in this is Volume Three of the History of English-Speaking People. The chapter called The American Constitution, and the chapter called Washington, Jefferson, and Adams. We'll come back to Wellington and Waterloo in the next segment. Uh, I am always amazed when I reread the American Constitution that Churchill understands it so well. I know he's half American, but uh, he, he might know Washington, Jefferson, and Adams as a Brit would know them, the enemies of the empire and the successful uh, leaders, but he doesn't write that way. And he gets the American Constitution in a way I don't know that many American lawyers get today. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's yet yeah, deeper than that, I think, because Churchill proposed throughout his career, various reforms to the British Constitution that would make it more like American. He wanted to recover the second house. Uh, he thought of a fa fancy system of election, not heredity mostly, for the House of Lords to be important again. And then he wanted federalism. He wanted regional parliaments that would deal with regional affairs. And that's because he understood that the division of power is crucial, and that, the, uh, and that the dealing with local matters and local places is crucial. 
And that's because he got a deep understanding of the American Constitution. And in 1936, in a very fateful essay, where he does not criticize Franklin Roosevelt by name, but in every other way he does, uh, uh, the, the essay is called What Good's the Constitution? And he praises the American Constitution as a bulwark of freedom. And he loves judicial review. He loves for, uh, you know, he, he just thinks that, you know, socialism has grown in Britain, and it's, you know, it didn't take over yet until after the Second World War, but uh, he, he thinks that there's, stability about that that can provide an anchor to the wind. And so he wanted the Brit Britain, so he did understand it, and he admired it deeply, and he thought Britain had things to learn from it. And it's unfortunate that the second house, though it was hereditary, has now become irrelevant. I mean, it's just irrelevant. The House of Lords is almost... Is it completely irrelevant now, Dr. Arndt? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Andrew Roberts is in there now, though, so there'll be some fireworks. But uh, at least they'll be smarter. Yeah, yeah they'll well, be smarter. If you know, he, what remember Churchill was a prime agent in the reduction of the House of, of House of Lords, right, in 1909 to 1911, uh, and they because the House of Lords delayed the main or they refused. The main measures of the liberal government that Churchill was a part of, and he just, that's illegitimate. But throughout that campaign, he always reminded people, he always said, we have to reconstitute the House of Lords so it actually can be a legitimate check on the House of Commons. And they did get the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, the uh, Northern Ireland Parliament. Dr. Arnold, let, let's go for a moment to Washington, Jefferson, and Adams, if only to appreciate a great man writing about great statesman like himself and he understands Adams to be among their number not many Americans do but Jefferson he spends a lot of time on 1803 with Washington he spends a lot of time on the decision to lay down power they're, they're just interesting what he chooses what a man of Winston Churchill's stature chooses to emphasize matters if people read it with that in mind well yeah and he Churchill is aware that uh, you know Jefferson did some had some nutty ideas you know he <laughs> he was much benefited by his friendship with James Madison, who had fewer nutty ideas. Nutty ideas. And many good uh, ones. But uh, uh, he loves the Louisiana Purchase. Because, yes. you know, uh, Jefferson, uh, he, he was a beautiful writer and thinker. And he could get going and he could take an argument all the way to its ultimate conclusion. And it sounds like it's iron when it's over. But, of course, that's not how practical things work. So he was a very strict constructionist about the Constitution. And the Constitution, you know, he, he fretted and worried, can we dredge a harbor? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, what does necessary and proper mean? Does it mean can't be done without it? Or does it mean just the best way? And... You know, there's in early America, back when federalism and limited government mattered more, that was a big debate, right? And Jefferson took the hard line, and then he bought Louisiana. <laughs> and then, for what is at best an extra constitutional exercise of power. That's it. And, and, you know, in other words, and Churchill loved that. 
he thought, you know, okay, there's a man after my own heart. <laughs> absolute <laughs> principle, not quite absolute. <laughs> because he goes, for people who don't know, the Louisiana Purchase is, you know, most of America, and Napoleon needs money, and so Jefferson's agent sells it to him. They don't have any authority to do this. They can't spend that money. Sort of yeah, like the student loan bailout, right? You know, the, in, in a little bit after this, every, you know, everybody wanted to build, an, in, in the founding of America, everybody wanted to build a national university to train statesmen in the principles and meaning and operations of America. Washington gave his largest bequest outside his family for that purpose. And it never got built. And goodness, George Washington tried to build it, tried to get it through the Congress. James Madison tried to get it through the Congress. Thomas Jefferson tried to get it through the Congress. And James Monroe tried to get it through the Congress. And they wouldn't pass it because it was unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if there's a case called Baltimore v. Barron where John Marshall says whether or not the Bill of Rights applied to the states prior to the 14th Amendment, this is a question of great import, not much difficulty, <laughs> because it's unconstitutional. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, so, so they, they couldn't, they, they, these founders of America couldn't get that university passed. I've always loved that, by the way. That was a better day. And I, you know, was. I, I myself formed an ambition a long time ago. I'm going to build that stinking university. And now we have. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, you know, that's right there in the Capitol, too. Yeah. So, so it, it uh, but, uh, but you can't build a university. There's not a specific grant of power to do it. But you can buy a third of the continental United States. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? God bless him. But, but I contrast it with the expenditure on the student loan, an unconstitutional appropriation of money by the president. It's already been struck down. It will be permanently enjoined. It was obviously unconstitutional from the beginning. And it was far more expensive than the Louisiana Purchase. And I am very glad that struck down because it's got nothing to do with benefiting every American for all time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think uh, we, at least not I, understood fully what was afoot when they did that, right? Because... They're organizing the youth vote, and they've got troops, right, huge numbers of people who go and study the voter rolls and find out everything about everybody, and then they go see them, and they take them a ballot, or they get a signature on a paper so they can go get a ballot for them, and then later bring them the ballot. Yeah, and by the way, that's not illegal, and if those are the rules, the Republicans had better learn them, but it is... I didn't think that so many people would vote for so small a thing, Dr. Arnold, but they did. Well, you know, you, you, you know, just think, you know, you go into a dormitory or an apartment where some college students live, and we want you to vote for Joe Biden. He's going to forgive all your student loans. Yep. That's a pretty yep. good argument. And even yeah. though we knew it was going to be struck down, and it was struck down, it wasn't. they timed it so we would not know that it had been unconstitutional. I... Oh, I get off. I get off on this. We come back, America. We're going to finish up by talking about Wellington. Because how could we do Volume 3 of the History of the English-Speaking People, which goes to 1815, from 1688 to 1815, the big glory years, as Dr. Arnes said. How could we do that without talking about Waterloo?
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I have not been in London nearly as often as Dr. Ron. I've never lived in England for long. But whenever I do go to London, I try and go to Wellington's house, the Iron Duke, with iron shutters because he cared not if the mob assailed him with bricks because his shutters would close. That's the end of his life. The beginning of his life is the peninsula. Actually, it's India, then the Peninsular Campaign, and then uh, Prime Minister. He's just a remarkable fellow, but we should talk about Waterloo because they send Napoleon away. Wellington wins the Spanish Peninsula War, Napoleon collapses, and then the son of a gun comes back, and he gets an army together, and he's yeah. going to win, except yeah, Wellington happens to be there on the spot, and a damn close-run thing, I believe he said. Yeah, well, the, uh, so there's a similarity between George Washington and Wellington, because they, they, they had a similar achievement. They didn't have a military force. They could stand toe-to-toe with the enemy. The French army was overwhelming, right? And so Washington's strategy was to use the size of our continent and attack the British when he wanted to and get away when he wanted. And they, they couldn't quite, you know, pin him down. Many times of trying. Well, what Wellington did, uh, so first of all, the... Uh, France is separated by Spain by the, and Portugal by the Pyrenees, tall mountains. My wife and I had our honeymoon in the Pyrenees. Oh. And they're hard to pass. <clears throat> and so Portugal is the greatest friend that Britain and the United States, longest living, out, longest serving, continuous ally of Britain and the United States. And so Wellington puts an army over there in Portugal, and the French can only get a certain number of troops over. There's actually an episode where they think they found a way to walk along the side of the Pyrenees during the, uh, uh, and, you know, get an army through uh, down in the Mediterranean, and, you know, Nelson shows up and kills them yeah. all Wax on the mountain path. So he, he doesn't have to fight them all. He can fight some of them, right? And... It's like uh, he's got a kind of a nozzle on the French army fire hose, and only a certain number, and he kills them while they come. And, and he does that for years. And then, uh, you know, France, you know, they had sacrificed immensely in the Napoleonic Wars and conquered huge things, most of which they didn't get to keep. But they have one great spasm, in 1815, when now Wellington has an army in Europe, in France, on the other side of the Pyrenees, and they have a huge, huge battle at, at uh, uh, Waterloo, and they, you know, I'm just reading this thing right now. There's, uh, you know, at that time, there's over a million soldiers in the field. Wow. In, in Europe, on both sides of the Napoleonic War. And two huge armies come together, and, uh, and you know, there are Prussians and Austrians and British, and there are French. The old guard is there, and the Napoleon, Napoleon's hardcore, hard-bitten veterans in 15 years of war. Yeah, and they're the best, you know. I mean, if you, you like to talk about Jack Aubrey in those novels, and they're really yes. good, about and your Hornblower, too. But uh, uh, Sharp's 
Uh, Cornwell, Bernard Cornwell, yep. That's right, and that's pretty good. And, you know, you can get a sense of what that fighting was like. And uh, In fact, he does it brilliantly. It, it's savage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, he, you know, and they, they, and, you know, it came, and, and Wellington was a great man and also had that gift of sight on a battlefield. So that he was very formidable, both in relatively small actions in Portugal and Spain, and huge actions at Waterloo. And you know, if you think about that, Napoleon was beaten, right? And then he comes back, Lord help us, right? And so, and they have the biggest battle of them all. Uh, and 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 Wellington has put together a coalition, and. Uh, and they go up against the French at Waterloo. And it was a battle fought from east to west. And, uh, and they beat him. And, they, that's, and that brought, that's what finished Napoleon, finally. And that's what Wellington said. It was a damn close run thing. The other thing he said, he's glad he got to beat Napoleon because until that time, Boney, as he called him, had never been opposite Wellington until decisively. And then off to St. Helena with you. Dr. Arn, don't go to St. Helena, but do come back next week and the Hilltale Dialogue will continue. We'll be on to Volume 4 of Winston Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People. Do not miss it. Please don't miss it. It's a, it's a wonderful series, a wonderful book. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. All of the dialogues are collected at iTunes. Just type in Hillsdale Dialogue and iTunes. You can listen to them in reverse order. Or go back to the beginning and begin there, or just go find the start of the history of the English-speaking people. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.